Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Hal Brands, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SAIS, to discuss his new book, The Twilight Struggle, what the Cold War teaches us about great power rivalry today. Mike and Hal analyze the merits of applied history and how the Cold War is an appropriate lens through which to gain insights about current U.S.-China long-term competition. How can lessons from the Cold War inform current U.S. strategy? Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm, I'm joined by historian and strategist Professor Hal Brands, the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SAIS, my alma mater, a senior fellow at the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, and columnist for, for Bloomberg. Hal's a prolific author, applies the lessons of history to statecraft, and has a new book out called The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. Congrats on the book, Hal, and, and, and really glad we can spend half an hour with you. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm a fan of the podcast, so I'm pleased to be here. So I heard buzz about this book before you probably even had the proofs in your hand. There's a lot of interest out there. One thing I heard people say is, this isn't the Cold War. China's bigger. China's share of global GDP is bigger. U.S. trade with China is 15 to 16% of our overall trade. It was never even 1% with the Soviets. So the first thing I want to say right away is that's not what this book is about, (laughs) obviously. It's about how you think about strategic competition what the dynamics are like, what we should brace ourselves for. Looking at the last time we had a serious strategic uh, competition of this existential nature. Before we get to that argument, though, I want to I want to talk about you a little. Your dad, this is a family business for you. Your dad's an accomplished uh, historian as well. A lot of historians think that this kind of applied history is bad history. You ever get family feuds in the past about this or your historian colleagues disowning you? Or do you think there's room in the discipline for actually applying history to statecraft the way you do? Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's there needs not just to be room for this, but I think it should really be at the center of the profession. I mean, I know the reason that I got interested in history in the first place wasn't kind of as some sterile academic undertaking. It was because I felt that history could be useful in understanding challenges we face today. And actually, as uh, an undergrad, I started out as a political science major, and in fact, double majored, and political science was one of those things. But the reason I was drawn to it is because, you know, a long, long time ago, political science was basically applied history. I mean, it was basically qualitative historical work that was meant to provide some deeper insight about the way that the international system or U.S. foreign policy works. And that was always what what drew me to the study of the past. And then over the past, you know, 15 years, uh, I've kind of lived a life where my primary home is in uh, the academy, but I've always been engaged in policy debates in one way or another. And so writing a book like this is is really just kind of a natural extension of the work that I've done. The transition you made from political scientist to historian was uh, quick. You're smarter than I am. I started as an undergrad history major, did a PhD in political science, and then went back to my original undergrad pursuit. For the reason you said, I sometimes feel like both disciplines have sort of moved away from each other in ways that are really counterproductive and unhelpful, because the early political scientists were exactly that. At Wisconsin, at Harvard, at Princeton, they were taking history and putting a rigorous set of 
questions and variables around how you interpret it. With that said, you know, um, historians are right to worry that applied history, when you're making an argument about policy, can get can get distorted, can get, you know, manipulated. Every historian, every scholar has a bias. How do you make sure you're being a, an archivally accurate, careful historian while trying to say something about policy? What are the disciplines you keep in your head and with your pen? Well, I think the, the key is really to come at it without preconceptions about what you want the policy argument to be, right? I think where you get in trouble is where you start the article or the project with the policy takeaway already in mind, and then you write the history to fit that policy narrative. And that that can lead to the sort of distorted or biased history that I think a lot of historians are are wary of. But if you go into it sort of from a good faith perspective, uh, and so that, you know, the question that I was trying to answer in doing this book was was really a bit open-ended. It was kind of what what can the Cold War teach us about long-term competition? There wasn't kind of an answer that was implied in that. And so I think that frees you up to really do kind of the hard historical work that that leads to good analysis. And the other point I would make about this just briefly is that, you know, the, the reality of the matter is that you know, whether I write this book or not, or whether people study the Cold War or not, the, the Cold War as an analogy is going to be central to our thinking about the U.S.-China and U.S.-Russia rivalries. And, and the reason for that's pretty simple. It's that the Cold War is actually within the living memory of a lot of current policymakers, even if they may have been quite young when it ended. And it's really the only time in American history when we have done Sort of determined multi-decade competition with an authoritarian rival. And so we're going to reach back to that past for insights in one way or another. And so we, we might as well do it on the basis of serious history that, that really tries to unearth the true story as opposed to a more superficial reading of it. My favorite quote of the people you quote in the book is the quote you have of Kennan, who argues that at, at you know, the very beginning of thinking about containment, he argues there is no real security in this strategic competition we were starting out with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Soviets. No real security and no alternative to living dangerously. And that really stuck with me because we are, it seems to me, at a cathartic moment in American strategic thought. And as you know well, by the way, Australian and Japanese and a lot of other allies about this problem. And that just was kind of chilling. There is no alternative to living dangerously. And that, to me, is the strategic point of discontinuity we've hit in the last few years. We now realize there's no responsible stakeholder. There's no new model of great power relations. There is no alternative to living dangerously. That really stuck with me. But that's a little bit of a depressing note to strike. So how would you characterize? What does it mean, uh, in your words, to be preparing for a, a, a long struggle? So it's it's a great question, and I think maybe I'll start by starting in the present and then working my way backwards. And so you mentioned kind of the transition period in U.S.-China relations that probably began about five years ago with the, the advent of the Trump presidency uh, when we decided that the responsible stakeholder was more or less dead and we were moving into a period of competition. And, and in a way, I think that realization kind of felt liberating for a lot of American policymakers. I mean, there was less concern about not rocking the boat in the U.S.-China relationship. And there was freedom to, to do things that the United States might have wanted to do but felt constrained to do in economic competition or technological competition for a while, but I think we've reached the point now where it's actually more sobering than anything else. I mean, competition is not free of danger. We've, we've learned that very much over the past year, both in the U.S.-Russia and the U.S.-China relationship, where I think when, when a lot of people were thinking about 
competition with China even a couple of years ago was sort of in this this abstract way. And now you realize that, that very tangibly there is a danger of military conflict that attends any geopolitical competition. It could happen in the Taiwan Strait. It could happen in Eastern Europe. It could happen uh, in a number of places. And, and so it's important going in to the study of great power competition not to kind of have a sanitized view of, of what it means. And this takes us back to the Cold War, where we look back on the Cold War now and we think of it as the long piece and sort of the exaggerated version of this is almost that, you know, there was a 45-year principled agreement to compete short of war but not go into war. And that really obviously wasn't how it worked. There were pervasive fears of global military conflict during the Cold War. The United States had to think very seriously about how to deter such a conflict or to fight it if it occurred. And, and so competition was really kind of a terrifying experience, especially given the presence of nuclear weapons in that competition and how new and terrifying they were. And, and so I think Kennan's quote is, is quite appropriate in the sense that when we talk about competition, we're actually talking about something that can be quite, quite perilous. Looking at the, the Cold War precedent, again, this is not the Cold War again, but embarking on a long struggle like this is, is an experience we got to look back at the last time you did it, as you argue throughout the book. How prepared do you think the American people are? How much consensus is there behind this competition compared with, say, 1948-49? The Korean War was cathartic, but before the Korean War, before June 1950, you had the America Firsters, you had isolationists, you had people opposing NATO. It was not as if the entire American population sort of read the long telegram and got it, right? Where are we today, do you think, compared to the, the beginning of that struggle? In, in some ways, we're better placed than we were back then for the reason that you allude to, which is it, it's a mistake to think back that there was this rock-solid Cold War consensus that came about in 1946 and lasted through the end of the Cold War. That's not how it happened. There were left-wing critiques of containment in the late 40s. There were right-wing critiques of containment in the late 1940s. There was not uh, an acceptance really until the 50s, maybe even the 60s, that sort of the United States was going to maintain this network of global military and diplomatic commitments that it had kind of been left with after World War II and took up in the course of the Cold War so if you looked at where we are today, you know, the United States actually has a lot of the things that it needs to compete with China and Russia, right? We have a network of alliances that's still probably our foremost tool in competition. We don't have to build that from scratch. We don't have to build an intelligence community from scratch, a national security state from scratch in the way that we did during the Cold War. So I think we're better prepared in, in those ways. Where we're maybe a little bit worse prepared comes from the fact that I think that the, the consensus on competition, and let's focus on China here, is probably broader than it is deep right now. And, and so there is a bipartisan consensus that China is a competitor of the United States, whatever that means. It's, it came from the Trump administration. It's come from the Biden administration. It has bipartisan support in Congress. And the polling on this stuff indicates that the American people are more or less on board with that proposition. But when you start getting into specific issue areas, I think the consensus looks a little bit shallower. And so when you start asking people, um, you know, should the United States restrict outbound investment into China to prevent Chinese companies from using American money to pursue the goals of the People's Liberation Army and things like that, you start getting less consensus. When it comes to uh, aspects of technological competition, when it comes to you know things that might actually pose some difficult choices for the United States economically or politically, 
I think there, there's less consensus. And so I think we're still at a fairly early stage of the competition in that respect. And, and part of the reason is that, and I maybe put an asterisk next to the statement, there hasn't been something quite like the Korean War to have the galvanizing factor in American public opinion. COVID maybe comes close. I think COVID had a pretty disastrous effect on China's global image, and it certainly had a liberating effect on China hawks within the United States. But I'm, I'm not sure that the effect is as profound as some of the early Cold War stuff was. So for those reasons, I think we're, we're in a little bit better position, but also maybe a little bit more tenuous position than we were in, say, 1951. And maybe the, the biggest difference, and again, you're not saying this is a new Cold War, but in terms of using that experience to understand the dynamics of geopolitical competition and what it means for the American way of government and strategy. Probably the biggest difference you'd agree, I think, is um, you didn't have such a stake in Soviet economic interests. You didn't have, you know, prominent Wall Street financiers to this day calling for basically no decoupling and faith in the marketplace with China. You didn't have soybean farmers in, in most states of the union getting most of their income from exports to China. You, know, you didn't have all of these stakeholders within the U.S. system who had so much to gain from the Chinese economy. So how do you, how do you sort of, you didn't talk a lot about that in the book, but how would you amend the lessons given that piece of it? We've surveyed this, you know, at CSIS, and both thought leaders and the American public are quite willing to decouple on high tech and do things like that. But when it comes to stopping agricultural exports or things that benefit us or cheap consumer goods, there's not a lot of support. And that's very different from the Soviet Union. We had no economic relationship, really, that affected average Americans. So how do you, what do you do with that one when you're trying to look at the parallels and the lessons? Yeah, what's different is that there are very powerful interests in American society that have a very strong stake in a stable U.S.-China relationship and an open U.S.-China relationship. And that's not entirely a bad thing. I mean, I think that the key is to think not so much about broad or complete economic decoupling as to try to figure out, you know, what are the areas in which we absolutely cannot be dependent on China for critical goods or critical inputs? What are the areas in which we absolutely cannot be enabling China's development? And so, you know, presumably we don't want to make it easier for Huawei to wire the world with 5G telecommunications, things like that. And then what are sort of the larger areas of, of not particularly sensitive or strategic trade where it's fine if there's a, a particularly extensive U.S.-China relationship? I, I don't know that China buying a lot of agricultural products from the United States is necessarily a point of strategic vulnerability for us. I think, if anything, it testifies to a strategic vulnerability of China's, which is that they are highly dependent on imports of food and, and other goods from abroad. And so you could make the same argument about you know, clothing that's manufactured in, in China. You know, we shouldn't buy clothing that's made from you know, cotton that's, uh, you know, done using slave labor in Xinjiang and things like that, right? But, but nonetheless, there's a lot of aspects of the economic relationship that aren't particularly sensitive and don't require broad decoupling. I mean, you, you could make a similar point about an issue I think that both you and I probably think about a fair amount in our university jobs, which is the flow of Chinese students to the United States. Uh, I, I don't think that we should be staunching the flow of Chinese students to the United States. And, and I don't think that just as an ed educator, I think about that as somebody who believes that the flow of up and coming Chinese elites to the United States is actually a point of strategic advantage for us in this competition. 
Now, there probably are things we need to be doing better with respect to dealing with the small number of cases that involve intellectual property theft or censorship and intimidation on campus and things like that. But that's really an approach where you need a scalpel more than a hammer. Yeah, I'm a, I do agree with you on remaining open and inviting to students from China, partly because they're great to have in the classroom. It adds, you know, in courses we teach about grand strategy, having voices in the room from the countries we're talking about is educational and interesting. But also because it's a strategic advantage in the long run. I mean, we're, we're talking about the next generation. And so my premise for saying that is that this struggle, which I completely agree with the premise of your book, is here and it's tough and it's dangerous, but it's not permanent. That, you know, that there's a theory of victory where the generation we're educated, whether it's Chinese or Americans, are going to get along a lot better than our generation is, right? Is that sort of where you see this all ending, to, to take a David Petraeus? That, that's certainly how I think about it. And I think that's actually a case where there is a really interesting Cold War parallel. And so what's striking about the generation of officials that starts shaking up the Soviet Union in really profound ways during the 1980s is that a lot of them had spent some time in the United States or elsewhere in the West earlier in their lives. Some, sometimes it was on student exchanges. Sometimes it was being stationed abroad as an ambassador or an embassy official or something like that. But a lot of them had a taste of what it was like to live outside the Soviet Union. And it's pretty clear that seeing how thriving democratic open societies worked had the effect of increasing their discontent with the way that a deeply authoritarian system worked at home. Now, China is not the Soviet Union. You can't say that enough, but it is an increasingly repressive system today. And, and I, I would imagine that one of the effects of bringing up and coming Chinese elites to the United States is, is giving them a sense of how a different type of system works. And, and frankly, just establishing some of the, the human to human ties that can actually be quite important in international affairs. And so I, I think we're on the same page when it comes to the way we think about this as a, a strategic advantage. So the way you write the book is looking at different themes in Cold War strategic competition, and then at the end of the book, kind of tying together some lessons or implications for us. And you don't come out and say, we need to recreate exactly NSC 68, or we need, it's not, you know, redo what we did, but sort of what are the implications for how we prepare for this ourselves. There is a bit of a contradiction in there, which maybe something you can resolve for us. But on the one hand, you want an open educational exchange with China, for all the reasons you just said. But you also quote, and I agree with this too, by the way, you quote Kennan on the need for offensive not just defensive, but offensive uh, political warfare, information warfare, so poking at the seams, the inconsistencies, the contradictions in the adversary's uh, way of life. The contradiction is this. This is why this is the excuse Xi Jinping and other authoritarians use to shut down civil society and free academic learning and discourse, because it's all just part of an American campaign to of offensive political warfare. How do you, this is a kind of tactical question, really. I don't think we ever figured it out in the Cold War, really. How do you take advantage of our open society the attraction of our values, even within an authoritarian state, and therefore wanting to preserve an open exchange and academic and intellectual rich interaction with China, while at the same time engaging in political warfare, which we need to do. Is there, do you have any sort of lessons from the Cold War or thoughts on the way forward? Well, the, the framing point here is that when Kennan and others thought about political warfare early in the Cold War, I think they were motivated chiefly by the idea that the Soviet Union certainly isn't going to hold back from trying to divide and weaken our society and pry us apart from our friends and allies. And so if we limit ourselves to purely defensive measures, 
that's a form of unilateral disarmament in this struggle. And since the struggle is really, you know, hopefully going to be waged using primarily means short of war, that's a part of the toolkit you just can't leave to the side uh, in a competition like this. And I, I think that's basically right today as well. I think the Chinese, I think it's fairly well established. The Chinese have a pretty well-developed program of political warfare that they pursue vis-a-vis not just the United States, but other uh, democratic societies that it's meant to make it harder for us to be an effective competitor. And so I think we're going to have to do things in the same area. The, the point I would make, though, is that you don't always have to think of political warfare as like the really sexy, covert action, dangerous type stuff that it sometimes gets described as. So we did a lot of political warfare during the Cold War that frankly wasn't that effective, right? And so we, we would parachute Albanian exiles back into Albania to try to link up with the anti-communist resistance there. And they all got killed because Kim Philby had infiltrated British and American intelligence service. You know, we, we uh, trained uh, Tibetan guerrillas to go fight against the Chinese communists and they pretty much all got killed as well. And so those types of things weren't always the most effective forms of political warfare. Some of the most effective forms of political warfare could be things like finding ways of introducing unbiased information into an otherwise closed information ecosystem. We used Radio Free Europe, for instance, to do this during the Cold War. There are parallels today that would come with you know, finding ways of circumventing the Great Firewall and things like that. Political warfare can also be, uh, you know, sort of a synonym for standing up for your own best values abroad. I mean, when the United States gets together with other democratic allies to sanction Chinese officials who are uh, involved in doing terrible things to the Uyghur population, that's a form of political warfare. It strikes at the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly under Xi Jinping. But it's something that we ought to be doing simply to validate our own values uh, as well. And so I think we need kind of a broad version or a broad vision of political warfare, one that is not uh, entirely constituted by sort of sneaky and subversive uh, acts. And I think we just kind of have to accept the tension as well. I, I don't think there's anything the United States can do, by the way, that would convince Xi Jinping that we are not trying to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. And it's not just Xi, by the way. I mean, it pr pretty much every, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping thought that the United States was trying to overthrow the Chinese Communist party as well back in the 1980s when that was basically the last thing that we had in mind. And so there, there is a degree of ingrained suspicion here that we're not going to be able to overcome. So the political warfare, the offensive, it's unfortunate the word warfare goes with it, but the offensive tool that works best for us is our openness. And just, you know, as you said, getting rid of the firewalls, opening up information. I went to college during the Cold War, so I remember it. I ran our radio station and we used to get the weekly world news from Radio Moscow and they'd encourage us to play it. And we'd play it with a laugh track. It was so ridiculous. It was propaganda, and we knew, and it was funny. We'd, it was like a drinking game. And after college, I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad from China through the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, which, which made for interesting security clearance interviews a few years later. The most effective piece of American political warfare I saw behind the Iron Curtain was outside the U.S. Embassy in Warsaw, where they had a huge placard with Herb Block cartoons making fun of Ronald Reagan. And dozens and dozens of polls just staring at it in amazement. You mean you're allowed to make fun of your leader? So I think that's what political warfare meant, probably what Kennan had in mind too. Don't emulate the other side, play to your own strengths, which is openness, information, challenging conventional wisdom and all of that. Uh, you have a whole chapter sort of on the contest in the periphery. And there was a great, you know, the Soviets and the Chinese had an advantage because, for example, a fight in the Korean Peninsula or Vietnam was a continental Asian fight. They had interior lines. We had to go across the vast maritime space. And we 
ended up getting sucked in <laughs> to continental wars. The peripheral problems this time, with a few exceptions, are maritime. That's different, isn't it? It's South China Sea, it's East China Sea, it's increasingly not only the first but the second island chain. It's closer to home, and it's more sort of vital in the sense of American sea lanes and the, if you will, Anglo-American source of hegemony for 400 years. How do we think about these peripheral risks, and which ones were you, like Taiwan? Riffing off what I just said, to me it's, it sort of says, worry more about the maritime periphery than the continental. But how do we think about these peripheral challenges? We're not looking at a direct U.S.-China fight. It's about, it's about the periphery. It's about third states. It's about spheres of influence and all that. How do you think about it? What are the ones that worry you? And what does it mean to this now increasingly maritime and therefore in our face? So I think there's maybe at least three ways of thinking about this issue. And so one area that I worry about is the one that you flagged, which is basically the the maritime periphery of East Asia. Right? And so you think a lot about East China Sea, South China Sea, and the Taiwan Strait as potential U.S.-China flashpoints. And in fact, those areas are so central to the competition that I, I don't know that we would even describe them as peripheral. I mean, that might be the core of, of this competition. And, you know, East Asia might be the, the core in another way as well, in, in that, you know, it's probably the most economically dynamic region of the world, or at least it has been for, for a while. And so it's not like fighting in Southeast Asia during the 1960s when that was the third world, it was economically underdeveloped and so on and so forth. It's, it's a bit of a different situation. But nonetheless, I think that's where the potential for direct conflict between the U.S. and China is, is most severe because that's where our security commitments or our ambiguous security commitments in the case of Taiwan overlap most directly with things that China is increasingly defining as its own vital interests and indicating that it is uh, very serious about pursuing the second one would be, I think, kind of the Eurasian hinterland of China. And so one thing that we sometimes forget when we think about China is that it's it's a really big country that reaches really far into Eurasia, uh, in fact. And Xi Jinping doesn't forget this. Remember, he uh, debuted the Belt and Road Initiative in Central Asia. And so there, there's certainly a realization, I think, in Chinese policy that China needs to be thinking about its territorial hinterland as potentially an area to expand influence in the in the context of a U.S.-China competition, maybe just because you want better access to uh, and sort of overland access to resources coming from uh, the Middle East, for instance, so that they're not subject to interdiction if they have to pass through the Strait of Malacca or something like that. But also because the Chinese have been talking more and more about trying to create sort of a Eurasian space that is oriented toward China economically and otherwise. And so that might actually be a pretty good parallel for kind of the Cold War periphery. And then the third area is maybe kind of the developing world or the developing regions writ large. And so when we think about particularly about technological competition, it seems fairly unlikely. I mean, it seemed more likely about three years ago that China is going to get some sort of technological hammerlock on, you know, key American allies in, in East Asia and Europe. Most of those countries have, have started throwing up firewalls against Chinese technological influence in one way or another. It's, it's more plausible when you think about developing countries, uh, in Africa, in, in Central Asia, in Latin America, Southeast Asia, places where Chinese technology will be more attractive for price reasons above uh, all else and where some of the security concerns are perhaps less keenly felt. And so maybe that's a third area where you see peripheral conflict 
playing out in a U.S.-China context. That's a good opening for the other thing I wanted to ask you, which is going back to your earlier comment that we don't have to create institutions. We had, you know, the National Security Act created the NSC, the Pentagon, the intelligence communities, our alliances, the Bretton Woods system. We have everything. We created all of it. It's all there. It's all strong. The one we're not using, which may be as important as any of them, is the Bretton Woods system, is trade and finance as a tool of influence to prevent hegemonic rivals from displacing us. We're just not using it. We've got all the necessary trade laws. Congress would give the administration trade promotion authority, but the administration doesn't want it because it doesn't want to suggest it's going to do TPP or trade agreements because they're controversial with the base. The politics are all gunked up. That is one tool we built in our toolkit uh, at the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, and we're completely not using it. And with the consequences being much bigger today, I would argue, than they were in the early Cold War. You know, it's hard to draw a direct parallel of what that would be in the Cold War, but what do you think about the economic piece of all this? This is the single most disappointing aspect of American strategy over two administrations now. And so I, I think the Obama administration, for all the problems it had uh, in dealing with China, recognized that you had to create a counterweight to Chinese economic influence. You had to create an alternative center of gravity in the region so that countries like Vietnam wouldn't just simply become totally dependent on the Chinese market. And so this, of course, was the, the impetus for the geopolitical impetus, at least, for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, which obviously the Trump administration got out of uh, after it proved to be a lightning rod in the 2016 campaign. And the Biden administration has now said that's not going to get into the successor agreement to the TPP, CPTPP. And the Biden administration really hasn't given much indication of what it thinks can take the place of CPTPP in American policy. It's, it's a huge handicap for us. I think the Chinese recognize it. They're trying to take advantage. They've now uh, announced their intent to try to join CPTPP. We have some good allies, the Australians and the Japanese, who I think will see it as their responsibility to keep China out. Uh, how long they will be successful in doing that, I think, is is an open question. But this is kind of the equivalent to, you know, I think Kurt Campbell, uh, Biden's uh, Asia czar, said this is the equivalent of fighting with one hand or even both hands tied behind your your back. It's, it's a huge gaping liability. And the problem actually isn't that trade is politically impossible in the United States. That's, the, I think, the superficial explanation for this. If you look at opinion polls, trade polls quite well, if you look at the way that the China issue itself has, has changed over the past five years, you could get the votes to put something like CPTPP through, I, I think. The problem is that it would take a big investment of the president's political capital. And because he has other priorities, it's an investment that he has chosen not to make. I, I hope very much that that's a decision that this administration will revisit sooner or later, because I think we're going to regret it if we don't. Well, the fact that our friend Kirk Campbell keeps saying that kind of thing and doesn't get fired, I take as a sign of hope, because I think they know. I think they know, and they're just trying to figure out the politics of when they'll prioritize it. But we pay a huge strategic price. My view on that one is we're a little bit lucky, special providence and all that. We have a very attractive economy for investment, especially high tech. And our economy's recovered better from COVID than many. And that's going to keep us deeply engaged with the most important economies in Asia. But that's for now. And China will get into TPP. They will if we don't make a move. It may not happen in two years or five years, but we can't keep dithering on this. Two fun questions I wanted to ask you. You may not think they're fun, but you know this is what geeky history, poli-sci, IR strategy nerds do. The first one, have we written the long telegram yet? Or NSC 68? Whose day are you going to make by saying that's it? 
that over the last two administrations, this was the NSC 68, the long telegram, the Iron Curtain speech. Have we done it yet? I don't see it. <laughs> but who's in contention for that so far? Or are we still waiting for that seminal strategic uh, insight? Or is it too obvious? You tell me. I, I think there's been some really good writing on the subject and, and uh, by a number of people. But I think what, you know, what made the long telegram the long telegram wasn't simply that it was you know, sharp analysis. It was that it was seized upon by the U.S. government and sort of became a more or less consensus definition of what was driving the problem. And then with the X article, where we were going over the long term. And I, I don't think we have that in, in two respects. One, I, d- I don't know that we have reached consensus on the source of our China problem, right? And is the source of our China problem sort of a classic realist tale where it's a rising power meets an established power and so there's conflict there? Is it something that's driven by the nature of the Chinese political system or perhaps better said the clash between the Chinese political system and an international order that the United States has built to reflect its own democratic values? Is it Xi Jinping? Uh, is it more of a personalized thing? I, I think we, we haven't quite gotten a full answer to that question yet. The Trump administration took a run at it in some speeches and documents issued very late in its administration. But the Biden administration hasn't, hasn't really given us that answer yet. And that leads to a second point of ambiguity, which we have not yet resolved, which is, you know, suppose we start competing much more effectively with China what do we think happens next, right? What's the theory of how this results in a better status quo for the United States? Is the theory that we start competing more effectively, the Chinese are chastened, and so you get some sort of 19, you know, parallel to 1970s era detente where the U.S. and China are still competitors, but uh, it's managed competition, vital interests are more or less respected, and it's something that is no longer threatening to touch off uh, big war and sort of that's that's the end game, right? It's competitive coexistence, as as some folks have called it. Or uh, if you think that the problem is more deeply rooted in the nature of the Chinese regime, does this mean that you have to do the the Cold War style thing, where you basically contain the malign expression of Chinese power until you get some sort of evolution within the Chinese system, or you get some sort of drop off in Chinese power, and so China is no longer uh, so interested in destabilizing or able to destabilize the international system. I don't think we've answered those two questions. And until you answer those two questions, it's not clear to me that you can have a long telegram X article style consensus. So the most interesting thing about Kennan's article then wasn't that he laid out a strategy, but that he basically spotlighted the nature or the sources of Soviet behavior and made it clear this was a long struggle, right? And we, yeah. we've seen, you know, Rush Doshi's book, The Long Game. Uh, Bates Gill has a new book on domestic sources of Chinese foreign policy. Jude Blanchett's done work and Liz Economy's book. People are starting to get there, I think, and starting to lay it out. And, there, and there's remarkable overlap. The differences are pretty subtle and sophisticated. So we're getting there. So the, so the, the prize is still out there to be grabbed by someone, right? No, that, that's right. And, and I think you're absolutely right about Kennan's article. It is 98% diagnosis and 2% prescription. Um, and that, that's often forgotten. And I didn't mean to imply that there aren't analysts tackling these questions. I mean, there are. And you mentioned uh, a lot of the really good ones. I, I think where we lack clarity is not within the academic community. It's, it's that the U.S. government has not sort of publicly articulated its theory of success in this competition. And so that's more of the ambiguity that I was 
referring to because I, I would share your your view that we're getting more and more good analysis of precisely these questions and that the differences are not as profound as one might think they are. So last question, fantasy football. If you could put together a, a league of strategists, a couple people from the Cold War, to help us figure out the current problem, who'd be on your uh, fantasy football team for strategy from the Cold War? I might go with the two great frenemies, Paul Nitza and, and George Kennan. And that may be a cliched answer, but I, but I think it's actually indicative of what good strategy requires. And so Kennan was much more of the intellectual and the deep thinker. He thought a lot about sort of grand strategy as grand strategy in the early Cold War. He was the leading Sovietologist in, in the United States. And he represents sort of the kind of big think, long think you need to be effective in long-term competition. Uh, and I think his, you know, he earned the reputation that he has uh, to this day. Nitsa was something that Kennan never was, which was bureaucratically effective. And Nitsa was sort of a bulldog. And so, you know, Nitsa woke up every day thinking about how he could strengthen the United States and the West vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, even if it required sort of bludgeoning the mind of top government, as Dean Ashton put it, with respect to NSC 68, with sort of a really ponderous and repetitive analysis of what the United States should be doing. And, and that was what Nitsa did really over the course of the Cold War. And he did it in different forms. Uh, his career is actually remarkable. He's there at the beginning of the Cold War in the late 1940s. He's there at the end of the Cold War with the INF Treaty uh, in the late 1980s. But he's really an indication that, you know, strategy is is aspirational in the sense that, that Kennan formulated it, but it's also deeply operational. And you need people who know how to get things done in government to make strategy work. And I think Nitsa was a good example of that. That's a great answer. The other thing it, it really spotlights is this was not a constantly revolving cast. There were new people who came in and out, but there were people who were there from the beginning, who thought it through, who revisited it who considered, you know, changes in the strategic context and the nature of the adversary. And I'm not sure we have that right now, to be honest. I, I would have put George Schultz on the list because no senior American foreign policy thinker in the post-war period understood, really understood uh, Asia and Asian alliances like Schultz, which is where the center of competition is, of course. But, you know, you look at the wise men that who basically convinced uh, Johnson we were we were losing in Vietnam. Those were the, the early Cold Warriors brought back. There was a lot of sort of reconvening and pulling back of the architects. We don't have that. Our, our politics have become so partisan. We tend to, there's a lot of forming of, um, of pickup teams, isn't there, as we try to form strategy these days. It's harder. I mean, NHTSA was in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. There are a few people who manage that today, but it's it's much, much harder. I mean, you could make the same point about somebody like Henry Kissinger, right, who, who sort of makes his bones in the 1950s thinking about limited nuclear war works sort of as a consultant for the Kennedy and Johnson administrations before going on to be national security advisor and secretary of state in Republican administrations. Uh, you mentioned Schultz. And, and the other reason I would put Schultz on this this team uh, is that not only did he understand Asia, but he he was really one of the earliest American policymakers to understand the implications of the information revolution and how it was changing geopolitics. And it's fascinating. He actually gives Gorbachev and Gorbachev's advisors sort of seminars on the information revolution and what it means for command economies in the mid 1980s. And there's pretty good evidence that it affected how Gorbachev and his team thought about perestroika and, and glasnost. And so Schultz, I think uh, he is perhaps, it's hard to say that he's underrated because I think his, his reputation is quite good, but he he must be 
one of, if not the most important American policymakers during the Cold War, certainly during the late Cold War. Uh, and he's also a bridge to the post-Cold War era in that respect. I, I interviewed him at length for my last book, and I just was found him fascinating. And information revolution, he was an economist, he understood economics. He was a very thoughtful and effective wielder of American values and democracy in our foreign policy. Um, anyway, we better stop, Hal, because we'll be doing fantasy football for strategists for hours. Uh, maybe we'll have to do another podcast or bring together a couple of colleagues to do that. But thanks very much. Congrats on The Twilight Struggle. Great, great book. Hits the bookshelves January 25th, right after this podcast. Great. And um, encourage everyone to read it and hope it gets translated broadly in Japanese and Korean and Chinese, too. Well, thank, thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. Hi, Asia Chessboard listeners. I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on chinapower.csis.org.